Welcome to the Refined Collective Podcast. I'm your host, Kat Harris, and a special shout out and thank you to Newsstand Studio here at Rock Center in Manhattan. This final week of the That's What He Said podcast series is brought to you by Patreon. Patreon is an incredible online platform that allows listeners to financially support podcasts they love. I would love to invite you to support the Refined Collective and making our content a possibility. You can support us for as little as $5 a month at patreon.com slash the Refined Collective. Your support helps us pay for our admin costs, our production costs, and all the little tiny subscription services that are involved in running and publishing a podcast. So if you'd like to learn more about how to join our Patreon community, go to patreon.com slash The Refined Collective. Now, friends, we've covered a lot of ground over the last eight weeks. In the That's What He Said series, we've talked to Jamal Miller. He talked about DM dating and how he met his wife by sliding into her DMs. Y'all, it's a reality of the day we're in. DM dating is real life. We've also talked with Jared Nickerson, who talked a lot about how to let him know you're interested. And then we have worship pastor from Passion City Church Atlanta, Jeff Johnson, and he unpacked how to create a culture of honor in dating, when dating can be awkward and tough, and to really show up and create a space full of honor takes intention. Next, one of my favorites, we have Matt Jones, He's single, in his late 30s, and actively dating. And he just brings a completely different perspective to dating and singleness as a man in his late 30s, as opposed to someone in their mid-20s. So you're not going to want to miss that episode. We also talked with Matt Dooley, and we went through Flirting 101. Does a guy know when you're dropping that hanky and when you're laying on that flirting game? We have Ben Stewart answering questions like, where are all the godly guys? And can men and women really be just friends? And finally, last week, we had Pastor Tim Timberlake unpacking how to know if he's into you. How do you know if a guy is interested? Well, Tim lets you know. All in all, we've covered a lot of ground. But one thing we haven't spent a lot of time on is the topic of sex. And we can't really talk about dating and relationships without talking about sex. So on this week's final episode of the That's What He Said series, I pulled a conversation from the archives with Church of the City, New York pastor, John Tyson. He's author of the book, Burden is Light, which I'm currently reading, and Beautiful Resistance, The Joy of Conviction in a Culture of Compromise. And by the way, He was the very first guy I ever interviewed on the podcast. And fun fact, he's also my pastor. (laughs) Now, if you grew up in the purity movement like me, you were probably given a lot of rules and do's and don'ts on sex, but not a lot of formation and theology. And formation is exactly what Pastor John Tyson is all about. In this conversation, Tyson unpacks Jesus and sex, how to have a biblical worldview on sex and desire in a culture of compromise. So let's get to it. Thank you so much for continuing to support what we are up to and to tuning in every week. I feel very excited and also kind of intimidated and vulnerable to be tackling the topic that we are talking about today. 
Today in the podcast, we're talking about developing a vision for sexual formation. Now, what in the world does that even mean? (laughs) Well, before we really get there, I want to give you guys context for why I even want to talk about this and how I got here and how I got to be a part of this conversation. So I am a Christian. I became a Christian when I was 17 years old in Dallas, Texas. So I was smack dab in the middle of Bible Belt culture. And pretty quickly after I became a Christian, I learned that Christians, good Christians, wait until marriage to have sex. I didn't really even know why. I just knew that that was the thing. And I wanted to be a good Christian. So I made a promise when I was 17 years old to wait until marriage to have sex. And that really wasn't a hard thing for me to keep up because I really didn't date a lot. And it's really easy not to have sex when you're not dating anyone. And that continued for a lot of high school, a lot of my 20s. But then I moved to New York City. (laughs) And as a lot of things changed in my life when I moved to New York, that changed too. I met and fell head over heels for a guy and cared deeply about him. We were super attracted to each other. And all of a sudden, because it's what good Christian girls do, was no longer compelling enough for me to want to keep my clothes on. And I was confronted in the midst of this relationship with my lack of vision about sexuality and the why behind not having sex until marriage. And when I looked around me, most of my Christian friends and non-Christian friends were all having sex. They were all sleeping around. A lot of them were living together before marriage. So I was confused. I felt alone. And I had no idea why I was doing what I was doing. So this guy and I didn't have sex, but we had a few close calls and the relationship ended. And I was devastated. And in my devastation, I began to really grapple with my why. How did I get here? Why did I get here? What do I want to do moving forward? Does God care about my sex life? Does he have anything to say about it? And honestly, guys, I really didn't even know if there was a scripture in the Bible that said don't have sex before marriage. I just kind of assumed there was, but I wasn't really sure. So because of that, I embarked on what ended up being a little over a year journey of researching every verse in the Bible that talked about sex. And it actually does say not to have sex before marriage. Um, I talked with as many people as I could. I read books. I went to seminars. I went to workshops. I listened to podcasts. And through that journey, really began to develop a new vision on how I wanted to view sex and really started to understand God's heart for sexuality and sex. So that is how I got here. And the more I started to share my story, the more and more you guys started reaching out to me saying the same thing. I was waiting or I am waiting. I have no idea why. I don't really even know what God says about this. I don't really even know if I'm worthy of the type of relationship I really long for. And I feel all alone, all by myself in the journey. So I'm here today to tell you that you are not alone. 
that God does have a beautiful plan and a plan of restoration and hope for your sexuality and your sex lives. And so with that being said, we, I am interviewing my very first man on the Refined Collective podcast. Um, so no pressure. Um, we are, I am talking with John Tyson today. He is a pastor in New York City at Church of the City. And he, I actually know of him because he's doing a series right now called The Controversial Jesus. And it's like the talk of the town in New York. Everyone's talking about this series because he's talking about all the hard things. Um, he is originally from Australia. He moved to the U.S. about 20 years ago with a passion to seek and cultivate renewal in the Western church. He is the author of Sacred Roots, A Creative Minority, and The Burden is Light. John lives in Hell's Kitchen neighborhood of Manhattan with his wife and two kids. And like I said, he serves as the lead pastor of Church of the City, New York. So John Tyson, welcome to the Refined Collective Podcast. Thank you for being here. Thank you so much for having me on. I feel really honored. Yeah, I, I I have been so blessed and and honored just listening to your teaching the last few weeks here in the city. And you have a lot to say about sexuality, sexual formation, where we're at as a culture, how we got here. So before we dive into that, I just want to hear a little bit more about who you are, John, and why do you do what you do? Well, I'm not quite sure where to start. I I grew up in Australia. (laughs) Similar to you, I became a Christian the weekend I turned 17. Mm -hmm. And um, I had no no desire to be a Christian. Um, I was basically a happy pagan. Uh, I spent my weekends surfing, uh, living in a VW van with my friends, just basically loving life. Mm-hmm. And I uh, ended up getting swept up into the kingdom of God in a Pentecostal revival and just had mm-hmm. a, a heart to see the kingdom of God advance at this time of history. Um, I'd heard that the United States had experienced historically two moves of God, two great awakenings, and just felt really compelled to seek God for a third great awakening in Western culture. So I moved here um, to study theology when I was 20, and yeah. um, I had been in the country two weeks, and I was doing a tour of the Bible college where I met this incredible, incredible woman who I have now been married to for 20 years. So I, I am a, a church planter and a pastor. Um, I've been in New York 13 years, and I'm passionate about helping people follow Jesus at this time of history. With so much cultural change, there's so much confusion. What does the Bible say? How do we find life in in a cultural moment like this? And uh, so my Mm -hmm. passion is really helping people follow Jesus well at this time of history. So Mm, That's good. Um, Thanks for sharing that. And it's So you were 20 when you were touring Bible schools, and you met your wife at 20. And did you get married at 20? (laughs) So I got married. As, as, you just have to let everyone know. <laughs> I got married as soon as I as soon as I could. So I I think I just turned twenty two, and my wife had just turned twenty. So and we had kids right away. I mean, it was a, it was amazing. We just got and, and you have to understand twenty years ago, small Southern Bible college deep in the mountains of Georgia, and mm-hmm. uh, so you know, particularly for my wife, she's thirty nine. Our son's about to turn eighteen and go to college this year. Wow. So in New York, people just do not know what to do with us. Um, right. You know, I'm 41. We'll be in our early 40s when both of our kids are in college. And um, so most people in New York are sort of getting married around our age. You know, so yeah. it's like 
it's been it's been an amazing journey, and we love it. And it's been we've had a couple of very very challenging years of marriage, and mm. we've had some absolutely heavenly ones. But mm. you know, we're we're happy than we've ever been in our marriage, and really grateful for God's grace towards that because there was a couple couple of years we're like, I don't even know if we're going to make it. You know? Yeah, yeah. I feel like that's real, and marriage is hard. And I'm acknowledge you guys for leaning into the hard the hard moments because it seems it seems as though we live in a culture that says um, it's instant gratification. It's all about like live your truth, do what feels good do it. What is good for you today? Truth is based on my gut, my feeling, and that's all good and fine until things aren't good and fine. And, and I, it seems as though our culture teaches us stay until it doesn't feel good. And once it, once it doesn't feel good, get out and find something new. So what you're really telling me is that you and your wife have done and are doing something really countercultural is as far as relationships go. Yeah. We, we, we are modeling um, just the idea of a covenant. And mm-hmm. we live in a culture of contracts, which is get the best deal you can for the least mm-hmm. amount of personal expense. Mm-hmm. And covenant says basically it's your marital vows for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer. Mm-hmm. And But I, I can honestly say the level of intimacy I have with my wife now, I'm 20 years in. I mean, I, we've just seen it all. I've watched her give birth to two of my children. We have fought, we have yelled, we have thrown things. I mean, we've just been through the full gamut of the human experience. Mm. And we love each other, not in an idealized, sophomoric way, but mm. in an, but a fully known, visceral, flawed human sort of way. And, and I, mm. I got to tell you, the level of intimacy is, is beautiful and you just can't shortcut it. You just, you just can't, you can't fast forward it. No amount of steamy sex or physical attraction that you just cannot yeah. fast forward a masterpiece. It just mm. takes time. So yeah. we're 20 years in and at the rate people are living in today's culture, mm-hmm. gosh, we may have another 60 years. Yeah. Yeah. Let's cheers to that. Yeah. Um, so as we get started, um, I want to just lay the groundwork of what we are here to do and what we're not here to do. Um, so what we're here to do is identify the cultural, um, the current cultural sexual content and really talk about how did we get here? What are, what is culture's response to how we got here? What is the historically, what is the church's response been to that? And is there another option? Is there, is there a different way? Is there another, is there another option? Yeah. And then probably what do we do? Like, how do we live? Um, I'm a 32 year old single woman, um, hoping to be married one day, but what do I do in the meantime? Um, so that's what we're going to do. What we're not going to do is there's, there's no shame. We're like, we're not producing shame here. We're also not, I never want to be a part of a conversation that is, um, hating on men. I think, um, oftentimes in the Christian world and non-Christian world, like girls get together and talk about relationships and it's immediately like, well, there's no good guys and blah, blah, blah. We're not going to hate on men today. And we're not going to give you like a systematic guide of what you can and can't do physically in relationships. Um, so sounds good. (laughs) All right. So John, I would love for you to kind of just tell me what is the climate of your church congregation? Um, where are they at in their relationship? Like, are they having sex? What do they think about sex? Are they like, what are they doing in dating? Um, what is, what's your pulse on um, the climate of your church, but also the climate of the city? Well, I, I think uh, the climate of the city is 
depressing. Um, mm. It is. I, I find so many people, Christian, non-Christian, who I think they're probably um, disillusioned with hookup mm. culture and disillusioned with porn. I mean, mm. I think basically people people have seen every single way that a human body can have sex. Um, mm. People have been in you know, as many relationships as they want at any given time, just, you know, due to the nature of dating apps and all that sort of stuff. So I think there's kind of like a, a, a low grade disillusionment floating around, around the topic in, so that's what I, that's my perception of the city, um, mm. with, you know, with a veneer and a layer of just like crazy fun and partying. Mm. But, um, you know, most of us know that social media is not real and most of us are aware of what it's like, uh, behind the filters, and I, I, I see that more and more um, being played out, particularly as um, st- stigmas around sexuality uh, mm. they are basically non-existent in our culture. So people don't feel cultural shame, they feel cultural freedom, but I think people are experiencing perhaps frustration or personal shame, even though the culture tells them they don't need to. Mm. When it comes to the church, I mean, our, our church is probably, I mean, we should do a survey to find out, but maybe... 75 or 80 percent single and you know we it depends on which service you go to on how that would appear uh, by attending but we would have more women than men a typical problem in the new york city church and i think that there is basically if i could sum it up in one word it would be frustration mm. and they're frustrated with how dating works in the christian community in new york they're frustrated by um the pickiness and uh, cultural stereotypes that shape Christians' perception of dating. So if we're followers of Jesus, we should probably be looking at it differently with different categories. And I think a lot of people are disillusioned that people are not. And um, and I think people are wrestling profoundly with uh, the sense of being left out where they look at um, people in the world who seem to be doing whatever they want and having some level of fun. And maybe like you said in your interview, sort of, you know, what's what's the point of what's the point of this? Right. And sometimes it just feels great to have someone be attracted to you and attracted to you and have fun with them. Is it really worth it? Is that much of a big deal? So, and then all that being said, I think on the other side, there, there are people who are maybe, you know, before they were Christians were uh, very sexually active or whatever. And I've seen the other side of it and uh, following Jesus with real joy, um, mm-hmm. with sort of a, a sexual faithfulness to Jesus ethic. And you know, really hopeful about uh, their walk with Jesus and intimacy with Him and involvement in church community. So, but I think in general, it is probably that that frustration that most Christian singles feel here in the city. Yeah. So, I, I, like, I wish I wish I could be more hopeful, but that's that's reality. Well, I think the first thing that we have to do is be honest with where we're at. Yeah. If I'm not honest with where I'm at, if I am stuck and well, this is how I should feel. This is how I wished I feel. This is how I could have, would have, like yeah. should or could, all those things don't really deal with the heart. And yeah. I think until we really deal with the heart and get honest yeah. with ourselves and with God and with others, like there really isn't room for growth. So we kind of have to like get to that baseline of like, let's, let's really take inventory of where we're at. Um, and that the sense of disillusionment and frustration I surmise and my experience has been that that is probably, this is general broad stroke. Um, that's how people feel, not not just in New York City, like all, I feel like that's probably all over. Yeah. Um, I can't say all over the world, but I've lived in LA. I'm from Texas. I get, I have thousands of girls emailing me on a monthly basis and I'm hearing these same pulses. And what I, what I really want to know and ask you is how did we 
get here? How did we get to this a place of disillusionment? Like we have more freedom, we have more connection than we've ever had historically in the in the world, yet we seem more disillusioned and more frustrated than we ever have before. Why do you think that is? Well, I was, it's basically, you know, people talk about the various revolutions that have happened in American culture, but I I believe the most effective one that absolutely swept the field was the sexual revolution. And I I was reading an article um, that that made its way through my world. And um, I I feel like just everybody emailed this and it was in the New York Times. It was an article called What Teenagers Are Learning From Online Porn. And one of the goals of the article was to talk about porn education. And there was this quote in the article that said for around two hours each week for five weeks, students, sophomores, juniors, and seniors take part in porn literacy, which aims to make them savvier, more critical consumers of porn by examining how gender, sexuality, aggression, consent, race, queer sex, relationships, and body images are portrayed, or in the case of consent, not portrayed in porn. Wow. So I remember reading that and just thinking, like, how did we get here in our mm. culture where high schoolers have to take classes to discern the realities of porn, not sex education, porn education. And um, so it's basically just the history. Um, Mary Edistalt wrote a book called Adam and Eve After the Pill. And uh, she talks about how the goal of the sexual revolution was the destigmatization and demystification of non-marital sex and the reduction of sexual relations in general to a kind of hygienic recreation where anything goes as long as those involved are consenting adults. So there was like a conscious effort to destigmatize and demystify non-marital sex. And so that just it made its way out through uh, the change of legislation. Like so uh, no-fault divorce had an incredible impact on the institution of marriage. The rise of media and the stories that were told in the media have, have rapidly changed. And um, I think that there's in many ways been sexual activists who have had a vision of deconstructing Christian Judeo ethics and sexuality and replacing it with this uh, destigmatized, demystified version of adult consensual sex. So that just through media and through you know, discipleship by our culture just became so normalized um, mm-hmm. that you look around today. And then with the rise of technology, obviously smartphones, it's like every kid has a porn factory in their pocket. And it's just, it's just shaped people. It's shaped people's understanding. And then obviously dating apps and the ability to speed up the process. And people have, in the, at the same time, they've lost their, um, that sense of interpersonal skill where mm-hmm. they have to learn to, you know, basically like win someone's attention and they just do it, you know, go straight to the app. And uh, so you, you're left without those human interpersonal elements and it sort of rushes straight to sex. All right. Over the last few weeks, we've been diving into some pretty real conversations about dating and singleness and what it is to be a single person in today's culture. And I don't know about you, but it can be tough to navigate sometimes. And you might not feel comfortable DMing me or commenting on an Instagram post your questions about dating, singleness, or your specific situation that you're going through right now with someone online or a person you're dating. 
So because of that, I created a private Facebook group just for my single ladies out there. It's bit.ly, that's B-I-T dot L-Y slash T-R-W dash single ladies for all my single ladies who want to walk through this season of singleness and dating with intentionality, who want to have other women who are going through a similar season of their lives. I have over a thousand women in this group who are active on a weekly and daily basis, asking questions, supporting one another, encouraging each other through whatever dating dynamics they're going through. Also, I join the group every single week to offer coaching and dating advice just for you, personalized to answer your specific questions. So join us if you are a single lady, bit.ly slash TRW dash single ladies. And I would love to invite you into our private community for single ladies. You know, I look at statistics and, you know, I'm reading this book, The Defining Decade by Meg Jay. And everything I'm reading in here about sliding into relationships, cohabitating the statistics, it seems as though Christians and non-Christians are living pretty similar lives when it comes to relationships and worldview. And it seems, it seems cohesive with this quote you read by Mary about the result of the sexual revolution. So what are we to do about that? Well, I think the church has traditionally um, overreacted with a non-compelling vision of Christian morality, you know, mm-hmm. so they, they just had an assumption that it was just so clear and obvious that sexual sin was wrong. And they basically had a formula that said moral standards plus willpower equals holiness. So here's what the Bible says. You know that you should do the right thing by it. And if you do what the Bible says, you'll be a holy person when it comes to sexuality. Mm-hmm. And that has failed to be a compelling story that captures our hearts And it's failed to be practically effective to stop sexuality amongst Christians. And so we've just, yeah, I think we've lost the story wall when it comes to what human sexuality is. And sex is such a primal power, uh, sexuality, desire, the, the longing for physical connection, what happens in your body when you're engaged in a sexual relationship. It is one of the peak human experiences you can do with your body. So just like, hey, you shouldn't because it's bad, just doesn't have enough power. And uh, so the church basically, through the moral standards plus willpower equals holiness framework, it basically failed. It just failed. And so that's why I think the stats are the same, because the world has told a better story. And with, you know, things like the arrival of birth control and separating reproduction from sexuality or whatever, it just seems like a completely fun experience that anybody should be able to do. So when you say that, like moral standards plus willpower equals holiness, like I can't help but think of like me being a 17 year old in like a hot, humid auditorium of my youth group getting a purity ring. And really the only thing I knew was like, okay, it was moral standards plus willpower equals holiness. And I feel like for a long time, at least in the Southern Christian culture that I grew up in, it was almost like your salvation was predicated upon like, my sex life and my party life. Like, do I have sex and do I drink? If I do those things, I'm probably not a Christian. And there's, uh, I read the book by Rob Bell, Sex God. He has a chapter called Angels versus Animals. Yes, it's a great chapter. um, I think it's one of the most clear depictions I've read about it. But what he says is, culture says we're animals, we're primal And we have these like instincts and urges and we succumb to them. It's why 
people in regards to one night stands or relationships just say, I don't know what happened or we couldn't help ourselves. It was animalistic. And so culture is claiming that we are animals. And the church, on the other hand, is saying that we are angels, meaning that we are asexual. So sexual desire, anything in regards to sex is bad. We shouldn't think about it. We shouldn't talk about it. We should only do it if only necessary to procreate a few times a year. And so what he says is both are dehumanizing and degrading to the Imago Dei, the image of God in us. What's the other option? Like we have, you know, what you say, fear, um, what Rob Bell says, the church expecting us to be like angels and then culture expecting us to be like animals. But if I'm reading scripture correctly, we're not either of those things. Yes. My, my, the, the concept I came across when I was researching all of this that I, that I really liked was the concept of sexual formation. So people talk about spiritual formation, which I, I guess in some way is a, you know, a, a more attractive word for discipleship these days. But the question of spiritual formation is always this, who am I becoming by what I'm doing? So mm. it, it adds a why and it adds, mm. a, it adds a direction, it adds a process. So instead of it being good, bad, sin, holiness, it starts asking the question, who am I becoming by what I'm doing? So that helps us you know, deal with the issue of sanctification over time and hopefully mm. takes away a lot of the legalistic, moralistic um, sort of behavioral therapy that's connected to it. And so if you if you take the idea of spiritual formation and, you know, like consciously choosing certain practices and organizing your life in such a way that, you know, you are becoming the person you want to through through this kind of lifestyle, that what happens when you apply that to your sexuality? We all know that sex is incredibly powerful and its impact on the human being is it's 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 staggering how much harm and how much blessing can come through sexuality. So instead of just saying, is it bad? Is it good? Can I do it? Can I not do it? How far can I go? And it still be sin. The question that I think is really important to ask is, who am I becoming by what I'm doing with my sexuality? And then when you get a vision of, of who we're called to be in the kingdom of God, uh, this sense of nobility, being conformed to the image of Jesus, being people who are under control, and not just driven about by urges and, you know, like, like godly, stable, noble, holy people. And then we start asking like, how do I use my sexuality to help that become true in my life rather than just getting out of that cycle of, of sin, shame, guilt, try harder, failure, try harder, failure, you know, and then, then I see this all the time. I see someone at church start dating someone, then they disappear for a while and then they come mm. back in hyper-repentant mode. And then mm. they show up with another, you know, another person they're dating and they sort of disappear for a while and they come back and they're hyper-repentant. And to try and give people a vision of, of just asking, not just what am I doing, but who am I becoming by what I'm doing it? And what is, what is God's vision of who I can be versus my culture's mm. vision? I, I, that, I found that idea particularly compelling. And, and just to, sorry, just to go back like one little section. Yeah. Yes. You know, I got a 15-year-old daughter who has mm. just gotten her first boyfriend. Oh yes. man, how's that? But, you know, <laughs> I'm trying not to fulfill all the dad stereotypes. I'm trying <laughs> trying to be like a cool dad and just, you know, intimidate the guy and make my daughter feel safe. I don't I'm, I'm doing my best. It's very confusing. But I understand why parents, even if it's even if it's awkward 
and embarrassing. I understand why mm. parents try and cast a vision of, of sexual mm. formation because the, the mm. culture just says, look, do what you want as long as the other person is willing and you'll be totally mm. fulfilled. And so, you know, typical, I think, worldly parents are just like, hey, sex is a great gift. It's a normal part of life. Just make sure the other person wants to and then go for it. And that just doesn't seem to have worked in our culture. That seems to be producing this disillusionment. And so even though it's a little clunky to have a purity ring and my daughter doesn't have a purity ring and we haven't had some pledge ceremony or whatever, though we've certainly talked about everything, particularly growing up in New York, this concept that sex is a powerful force and how we yeah. use it shapes us tremendously. Therefore, mm-hmm. we should have a vision of using it in a godly way to form us into the image of Jesus. I understand why dads do that. I'm trying to pray, perhaps do it better than the hot, stuffy auditorium where you're sold morality. But I understand the instinct. The instinct is care, you know? Yeah, yeah And I mean, I even I think of myself, the women that I do life with too. And I feel like every girl out there, I don't know if guys too, but every girl out there, myself included, has the experience where, I mean, I dated a guy in my 20s and he was a jerk. (laughs) Like there's a scene in the movie Bridesmaids where it's uh, Maya Rudolph and Kristen Wiig and Kristen Wiig's character is doing a tool. And Maya Rudolph is like, why are you seeing him? He told you, you need a dental work. (laughs) I I love that movie. That was so funny. (laughs) So good. And that scene like hit me because I dated a guy in my 20s he, it was off and on. He never introduced me to his friends. And I knew that he didn't really even like yeah. me, but I just kept like a dog to its mom. It kept going back to him. And I remember even in the situation being like, why am I doing this? Like, why am I dating with these guys that I, if I'm really being honest, I probably don't even really like, but they clearly don't like me either. And I feel like that story is a dime a dozen with the women that I hear from is why are we dating and sleeping with people that we don't really even like? Yeah, one, of the, one of the things I came across um, is an article um, that was in Vanity Fair called Tinder and Hookup Culture Promotion. And it's a couple of years old. So it's, it's probably more acute even now. But one of the lines that was so sad that's sort of like you know, connected to what you said it's this, just like the stories of what people said. So one girl said this about Tinder. I had sex with a guy and he ignored me. And as I got dressed, I saw he was back on Tinder. Yes. You know, and I think like that's, that's so much of what modern culture has become. And to ask mm-hmm. yourself the question again about sexual formation, if I'm randomly mm-hmm. sleeping with people in a technologically facilitated, as efficiently as possible manner designed to join our bodies but not any other part of our life. Who do I become? What happens to my sexual tastes? What happens to my self-control? What happens to my self-esteem? What happens to my understanding of how to build a life and holiness if this is just like something that I'm repeatedly doing? So, you know, I get asked all the time as a pastor, hey, you know, do you think Tinder is sinful? And I was like, I have have Tinder in a different category. I have Tinder in the category of asking who am I becoming by repeatedly being involved in this process. And I think that getting back to sexual formation, that is a more helpful yeah. lens to look at this. And a lot of people who are on it deal with, after you get, get over the initial technologically facilitated dopamine addiction, 
you know, like they're designing mm. things to make you feel, oh, I got, you know, he wanted me, We're, you know, that sort of thing. When you get past that a few times and you realize how it's basically, you know, rigged to play on your psychology and your self-esteem, I think I see a lot of Christians mm. just sort of saying, there's got to be something better than this. Right. It's like we all know it. Yeah. And I wonder if that's why that frustration that you're talking about, it's like, the Augustine confessions, like our souls are restless until they find rest in you, God. We're not satisfied. There's this frustration. And I'm wondering if it's because there's like, there's no vision. There's no like greater story. Like it's more than just what you said earlier, like morality plus willpower equals holiness. Like God is a storyteller. Um, he's a vision caster. I think this is totally true. And a big reason... You know, one of the things that Christians have neglected in in modern culture, particularly American culture, is that our faith has been primarily academic. And James K. Smith's written a ton of this. Uh, you know, he's, he wrote a phenomenal book, "You Are What You Love," and mm-hmm. I think there's something really, really connected to getting to the heart of this because when you talk about um, cultivating desire, when you talk about what you want, when you talk about longing for something that transcends us, we forget how our bodies, if we use them properly, can be incredible tools of spiritual formation. So if you know, if the goal of life is like loving God and loving other people, our bodies and how we treat our bodies and connected to our sexuality can become a staggering tool of discipleship if we if we see them as an opportunity for for Christ likeness and so rather than just thinking about you know like I, I have these uh, urges these physical urges but asking the question how do I use them for spiritual formation how do I evaluate my desire how do I redirect desire how does this desire match other things is eroticism purely sexual or is there an eroticism for life as Ronald Rollheiser mm-hmm. talks about and how, how we channel those things, I think, becomes very important. So I, I want to reclaim the role of the body and sexuality mm. in discipleship because rather than just saying your body's bad, try not to have sex with it, it's going to be really hard because it's filled with chemicals. It's saying, how do I use my body and um, let these natural desires that I have point me towards deeper longings, which is what you're saying, our hearts are restless. How do we align our bodily habits and practices to to tune into that rather than to numb that? And I think that's something definitely worth exploring. What would you say, like what you're talking about, like this vision, like, and also what you're saying is no wonder this series you're doing is called Controversial Jesus. It's controversial. It's provocative. It's, I'm sure it's ruffling feathers across the board, like Christian or non-Christian to the idea that like our sexuality could manifest the glory of God or be reflective of our spiritual formation. That's typically not what I've heard about sexuality. And so without having like a ton of time, like can you cast a new vision? Yes, I can. So, so just a, a couple of caveats before I do. Yeah. I mean, the, one of the most controversial verses in the New Testament, I, I think, where the mm-hmm. Apostle Paul says, the body is not meant for sexual immorality, mm-hmm. but for the Lord. Your wow. body is a sanctuary of the Holy Spirit. You are not your own. You were brought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. So, I mean, if you were to ask our culture, what's your body for? It would be like sexual gratification. Mm. And the Bible says your, your body is not for sexual immorality. It's mm. for the Lord. And so even reclaiming, um, you know, 
who we belong to is massive. This Sunday, not to give away the punchline, um, I'm speaking on Jesus and politics with Jesus. The Pharisees come to him with a coin and say, should we pay taxes to Caesar? And then he asks and he says, well, whose image is on the coin? And he says, well, it's Caesar's. And he says, give to Caesar's what Caesar's, give to God what's God. But the thing we fail to see is that our lives bear the image of God. So the coin had the image of Caesar's, but we as people have the image of God in us. Therefore, we have to give our whole lives to God. That includes our sexuality. That Mm. is a controversial idea. And I've actually gotten a ton of visceral feedback. The second thing I wanted to say about that is I wasn't sitting here trying to architect. How do Mm. I do something really controversial that people talk Mm. about? You know, by nature, I'm an introvert and I prefer to just teach through books of the Bible. But Mm -hmm. I just was having so many meetings with people uh, who were part of the congregation. And I felt like they were just asking me the same questions again. And I was struggling to find either the appropriate resources or enough, uh, you know, context and history to make sense of it. So I basically gave an invitation to the whole church, which was like, email me the top 10 things you wish Christian pastors would preach on, but you'd never hear sermons on. And um, it was like sexuality by about 92 to 8. I mean, it was just like that was what everybody wanted to know about. It was like dating, premarital sex, masturbation, dating apps, um, gay relationships, what is gender, Jesus, Jesus and gender, the transgender community. So I was trying to serve our people as their pastor, not whip up a controversial series. So all that to say, it did get me on this path of asking the question, what is Christian sexuality? And so I I think it basically comes down to four things. Number one, sex points beyond itself. The sexual act is, and and human beings having sex, uh, and Philip Yancey talks about this in his book, uh, Rumors of Another World, human human bodies are vastly over-equipped for sexuality compared to the animal kingdom. We're the Mm. only species that regularly has sex facing one another so that can we look into each other's faces rather than just looking at each other's bodies. And it's like this this crazy act that seems to to cultivate a desire for union inside of us. And that's Mm. like it's 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 producing something inside of us. In fact, the word sex itself has the idea of separation and reunion. So it's, it's like a pointer to, to something beyond ourselves. So Yancey says this, the word sex comes from a Latin verb that means to cut off or sever, and sexual impulses drive us to unite. Freud diagnosed the deep pain within us as a longing for union with a parent. Jung described it as a longing for union with the opposite sex. But the Christian sees a deeper longing for union with a God who created us. So the sexual act and our longing to be fully known, to be naked and vulnerable and accepted and joined is actually a a clue that God has put to point us to the kind of union that we have with him. And that's why the the central metaphor of the the scriptures is actually language of bride and groom. Mm -hmm. So all all through the Old Testament, God's, God's longing for his bride. And then, obviously, Jesus calling the church the bride of Christ and in all of human history, ending to, towards the marriage supper of the Lamb. This is, this is like God filling our culture and our institutions with um, glimpses and images of our relationship with Him. The second thing about Christian sexuality is that it's about a holistic integration of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. So, like, probably pretty popular teaching in uh, New York right now is, look, Give someone your body, but put up your guard emotionally. So give you give your body away for free, but your heart, your emotions, you need to guard those things. 
And and we just make the claim, you can't. You mm-hmm. can't do that. It, it is your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength that is is connecting with someone else. So on a physical level, like the, the kind of chemical reactions, and I'm not just talking about um, orgasm, but like the kind of physical reactions that are happening in your body when you sleep with someone, that the hormones that are being released, the chemicals that are being produced in your brain, you're literally joining with that person. The way you think and see that person in the future is deeply integrated, how it shapes your loves and desires for that person. So Christians actually make the claim that it's not just body parts or what uh, one French uh, philosopher called technique, but it's actually holistic. So it's learning to love with our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And uh, that's a very, very different vision. Again, as I mentioned earlier, I think that um, Christian sexuality as opposed to worldly sexuality is tied to our transformation. So instead of going into it just for the concept of pleasure, we go into it and we ask the question, how do I find God in sexuality? How does my bodily desires awaken longs that can be pointed to God? And how can I use self-control, which is a fundamental thing that almost doesn't exist in our culture? How do I shape all of these wild erotic desires that flow through my life every day and channel them and discipline them towards a vision of holiness and self-control. And so saying no to things and learning to you know, um, renounce things is a central part of Christian discipleship. So learning to resist desire rather than give in to them forms our capacity to be more holy and strengthens our, our vision over time. And then lastly, I, I would say it's, it's about a witness to the world. And so whenever you see a couple who are truly loving one another and really modeling Christ-like love, the world should say, where can I find someone to love me like that? It's agape love. When the Bible says, husbands, love your wives, it's agape your wives, not eros your wives. And I think we forget that. So when you see a couple loving and serving one another, mutual submission in beautiful, compelling ways, it makes people say, what is that story? It's hauntingly familiar. And it gives us the chance to point back to God. So I think those are probably a couple of the ways that the Christian vision sexuality sexuality is better than just self, you know, basically the modern vision of sex is masturbation with somebody else's body as opposed to the Christian vision, which is agape love and the giving of yourself and modeling Mm -hmm. Christ and sacrificial love, you know, through, through sexuality. So it's a very, very different vision. Yeah. So I think when you're talking, something that I thought about was just like the question of like, well, then like, what is love and what is, what is sex? And, um, like I was, I shared on Instagram today, a story about when I was like going through a heartbreak and I just was making out with a random guy I met at a bar. And I had this like out of body moment experience where I was like, why am I making out with a stranger? And I literally felt like I could have been kissing my hand. Yeah. And it like was a stunning moment for me to pull back and be like, oh, so if I could just be kissing my hand, that means I could just be interacting with an object, which means then I've taken this this taken this human being who if I believe that God is real and the Bible is true, then that he was made in the image of God and has infinite worth and value and is multifaceted and multidimensional. I have flattened him to an object of my desire to scratch an itch. He's, it's, it's totally, he's a, he's a commodity. Mm-hmm. And C.S. Lewis obviously writes about this where he says, lust 
wants an experience, therefore any person will do, but love wants an actual person. Mm -hmm. And love won't be satisfied until it connects with an actual person, not just anybody for an experience. That's a paraphrase. Mm -hmm. But I think that is definitely true. We're in a culture where it's just, it's prowling for lust and anybody will fulfill the need. Anybody hot enough Mm -hmm. or that that meets our taste will fulfill the need. But love is actually fixated on an actual person. Mm -hmm. They're full of humanity. And I think our world has just lost that vision. Mm. So just kind of like wrapping up here. Um, yeah. So what a lot of what you're saying is what I'm hearing is like, who are we becoming? Like yes. That is a question to be asking ourselves practically, like who am I becoming and developing a new vision for Christian sexuality? Um, can you just go over the four, like just bullet point it one more time? Yeah. So, well, yeah. So I think the first thing um, that we need to see when we, we're talking about a vision of Christian sex, uh, sorry, a vision of Christian sexuality is it's, it's ability to show us the story that we long for. Mm-hmm. So it is pointing us beyond ourselves to the God. The, the no sexual experience, no matter how good it is, will satisfy the ache for union, that profound driving human longing for union. And that's why I talked about, like, uh, in the singleness, talk about this, this, uh, beatific vision, this beatific vision that pulls us into the future. That's what we're after. And mm-hmm. sex is a, a, a signpost to a deeper intimacy with God. Mm-hmm. It's about holistic integration, not just technique. So, you know, porn is technique. It's zoomed in genital technique. But we're talking about the holistic love of a person, mind, heart, soul, emotions, care. Um, it's a it's a tool for tremendous transformation, like who we become, the kind of dignity and nobility we develop, like Paul talks about in First Thessalonians chapter four about learning to control our bodies in nobility and honor, not in passionate lust like the heathen who don't know God. Mm-hmm. So it can be tied to a vision of real transformation, and it's a, it's a witness to the world. Mm-hmm. And so it it should provoke people to say, what sort of love is that? And you say, this this is the love that you were born for, mm-hmm. and it you know, points us ultimately back to Jesus. So the love we were born for. That's, that's good stuff. Um, thanks, John. Thanks for sharing your insight, your wisdom. I know that you unpacking this does not come from the hip. It's come from tons of study, tons of research, tons of prayer. And so I just want to thank you for the hard work that you are doing and for the truth you're sharing and inviting, inviting people into a deeper story. Um, to the redemptive story, to the gospel story. So thank you for sharing with us. No worries. I am legitimately honored to be the first man on your podcast. So thank you for this privilege. I appreciate it. And just a couple more things. What are just, can you give us like, what are three resources that would be helpful to a woman wanting to navigate this like path of a new vision of sexual formation? Um, Well, I mean, there's a book called Divine Sex. And that is a book. Now, it's just, um, it's a touch heady. So it's filled with sort of like a lot of philosophical concepts. And um, it basically tries to do something very important, which is deconstruct how our culture works and trying to understand the worldview that's behind um, this modern vision of sexuality. And so that's a book called um, Divine Sex. And I, I think that was just wonderful. There was a book, I, I, and some of these I didn't quote in my sermon, but there's a book I loved called Love Thy Body by Nancy Piercy. And that was just a beautiful, beautiful book about why our bodies matter. 
and what God is trying to do through our bodies. And I thought that was um, a really delightful book. I mean, I've got, I've got so many more. I don't know how many you want, but um, here's another book I liked, A Better Story, God, Sex, and Human Flourishing by Glenn Harrison. Okay. And um, that gets, that's it. It's in, it's in the title, A Better Story, God, Sex, okay. and Human Flourishing. So I thought that was a, a wonderful book. That's good. And I'm actually, I'm reading Divine Sex right now per your suggestion. And I'm not a super like, like philosophical person. And I feel like if I can understand it, then other people can understand it too. So. Yeah. It's, it's, yeah. I read that book and seriously, it's like, what didn't I highlight? Here, I it mean, was like more highlighted than unhighlighted. Yes. That's so like every single page is like, it's, it's all good stuff. Um, and then just, I asked this to everyone before each episode ends. Um, we've talked about it a lot. I believe that we were all created with a story to tell. I believe that within all of us is a deeper vision, a deeper sense of purpose, and our lives are telling the story. Um, we're, invi- we're inviting ourselves, we're inviting others, we're inviting the world around us into the story. And so, John, I want to ask you, what is your vision? So, I mean, my vision is, is simple. It's the vision of our church. It's the way of Jesus for the renewal of the city. Mm-hmm. And um, th- there's a, a philosophical concept. This is, may sound a little bit heretical, but I didn't become a Christian because I had this overwhelming sense that I was a filthy sinner who, sinner who needed the cleansing blood of Jesus. That, that happened, but that's not why I became a Christian. I became a Christian because of this um, German philosophical concept called Zehnsucht. And uh, it's, it's why C.S. Lewis says he became a Christian too. And it's basically a deep, deep, deep longing. And you're trying to get to the source of the longing. And he has this quote that says this, the unfulfilled longings of God are better than the fulfilled longings of the world. And that's why I became a Christian. So even though as a follower of Jesus, I'm filled with tensions and I'm filled with conflict, the sweetness of that longing and the sweetness of the tension and the sweetness of the conflict is more satisfying than the fulfillment of all worldly desires. And so I think that deep down in the human heart, everybody has that longing and I'm trying to help them see that it's Jesus that ultimately meets that. And the tensions of living in the way of Jesus are better than the fulfillment of the world. John's vision for sexuality is powerful. He talks about one, how sex points beyond itself and casts a vision for holistic integration as we view sexual encounters. Three, he talks about how sex is tied to our transformation. And finally, how it has the capacity to be a witness to the world. And the question on top of all of that, that I love that John encourages us to ask ourselves is, who am I becoming? The reality is that every decision I do or do not make is pushing me in a direction. What is the direction you want to go in your life? How are your actions in alignment with your beliefs and values? If they're out of alignment, how can you get back in line? How can you course correct? I think sexual formation is less about rule following and more connecting to the heart of who we want to be. Now, there are a lot of resources in this episode. Tyson talked about books and we talked about different podcasts. So be sure and check out the show notes for this episode on the refinedwoman.com slash podcasts or just swipe up in iTunes and you'll see the show notes. Now question, did you like this series? Is there another series you'd like me to cover? Do you have different topics, questions that 
you want me to go over on the Refined Collective, reach out to me on The Refined Woman on Instagram, and I would love to hear from you. This podcast is here to serve you. So I want to make sure that I'm answering your questions. Finally, I honestly can't believe that 2020 is almost over. We have a few brand new episodes dropping before the new year that I want to let you know about. We have viral TikTok dating coach, Sean Galinas. If you haven't checked his stuff out on TikTok, yeah, I'm telling you to download TikTok if you're not already on it. His handle is at the love drive. His dating coach advice is stellar. I cannot wait for you to hear this conversation. I also have New York Times bestselling author and financial expert, Anthony O'Neill talking about why so many single people are broke and how to actually step into financial freedom in your life. So just because it's almost December doesn't mean our podcast game is slowing down. We have some great content coming up for you starting next week. So make sure you're subscribed on iTunes so that when next week's episode drops, it goes straight to your phone or device. All right. Thank you so much for being a part of this really fun series. That's what he said. I hope you enjoyed it. Talk to you soon.